G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast, the Round 16 Review Edition. As always, proudly brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly. Well, dramatic few days of football, some weird and wonderful goings on. We had Eight of nine games played in Victoria, thanks to the pandemic. Takes you right back to the old days, that. Some surprise results, some shellackings, and a new team at the top of the ladder. And joining me to talk about it is my co-host, Mark Fine. What going on, Finey? Plenty going on. The round started with mouths agape. The Suns, maybe Marvel should be their new home taking one of the biggest scalps in the game. And it ended with, as you said, a team rising, unsurprisingly, given that they were red-hot favourites to win. Uh, Melbourne lost, Bulldogs won, and they're on top of the AFL ladder. I tell you what, I'm proud that we're providing a fresh, ready-to-consume review of the round. So to all of our footyology listeners that have indulged us on Sunday night, well done you, because we're first cab off the rank pretty much, and I'm pretty proud of that, Rowan. Indeed I am. None of it, of course, could be possible without our very loyal audience and without our very loyal sponsors, and a couple in particular have been with us a long time now, Finey. Who would I be talking about? Well, if I'm talking about proudness, pride, proudness, should use English on this podcast. If I've got pride in freshness for the product, then certainly I'm heading to 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park for an Andrews hamburger. What's wrong with taking a beautiful burger, that's, you know, wrapping your hands around the two buns and biting in and getting no surprises, but just the delight of a beautiful beef patty straight off the grill, Melted cheese, if that's your fancy, fresh vegetables, you bite in and it is every bit as good as you remember the best burger bite you've ever had. And I guarantee that that is true. There's no surprises. There's no Roquefort cheese. There's no yams. There's no clams. There's just the perfect burger bite. I love Andrew's hamburgers. I could go one now. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Disappointed you didn't finish it off with the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. That's where I thought you were headed. I'll tell you what, no um, quick how's your father and then buggering off when it comes to quality home renovations, Finey. No, I for detail. It does take time, but it's done in a timely fashion, may I add, because the team are adept at getting the job done and they do it with an eye for detail. Who? West Point Properties. Nick Spartel's the principal there. 
he has been making people's dreams come true for decades. If you're in the inner southeast of Melbourne, you know that your property is valuable. Why not maximise its value with a wonderful renovation or even a build from scratch? If you've got the property or the land, then West Point Properties can take advantage for you with your blessing, you'll have the best house in the street. Contact Nick Spartels. And for the best statistics in the business and the best quality analysis of those statistics in the business, head to Stats Insider. They are the best sports data analysts in the caper. They work on a range of more than 15 sports globally. They sample an event more than 10,000 times to bring you the best range of possible and probable outcomes. But that's not all. There is a whole lot of quality writing on their site as well. And in fact, I'll be pinning something for them tomorrow morning. So look out for that, statsinsider.com.au. And while you're at it, give them a follow on Twitter, at Stats Insider. Thanks again to all our wonderful sponsors and our wonderful audience. We've got a pack show for you, nine games to analyse to within it inch of their tiny lives and we're going to do that right now on footyology wrap around first game of round 16 originally scheduled for metricon stadium transferred to marvel stadium which wasn't great news for the alleged home team gold coast but that didn't matter because uh, the suns pulled off one of the best wins of their pretty mediocre history. And fair to say, the upset of the season, a 10-point win over a struggling Richmond. The final scores, Gold Coast 10-17, 77, defeating the hapless Tigers 10-7, 67. The goals, four to King, Ainsworth, Corbett, Rankin, Sexton, Sharp and Swallow. All singles for the Suns and for Richmond. Tom Lynch, five, Valiant and a lone hand up in attack. Singles to Bolton, Graham, Martin, Nash, Rewalt. Well, an amazing result, Finey. And um, you knew from pretty early on that the Suns were in this contest up to their necks. And uh, we all kept waiting for Richmond to sort of put the foot down and motor away. It didn't happen. A really great win by the Suns. And um, I'm still not writing them off for the flag, but the Tigers, they are in a fair bit of trouble. Massive turn up. What'd you make of it? You know, about halfway through that first quarter, all of the problems that had surfaced in that loss to St Kilda, bad disposal, not applying the sort of pressure that Richmond are famous for and just a nervousness that we don't associate with these mighty Tigers was in evidence again. So really, you scrap yourself in, this is going to be an interesting game and so it proved to be and the right team won. You look at the scoreboard, yes, they won by 10 points, but they had 10 more scoring shots. And save for Tom Lynch, there wasn't much that Richmond could pin their head on. No longer, well, at the moment, can they just turn to Dustin Martin to turn on the tap and win them a game of football. That seems a little bit beyond him at the moment. Really, the forward line relied on that one scorer. Rewalt, a little disappointing. I know that he's carried the can and played well for most of the season. 
But in partnership, as a tandem, he didn't step up. Tom Lynch was playing on Sam Collins, pretty brave Sam Collins. He was on one leg and forced to stay on the field. And I guess he got beaten, but at least he was a body. For me, the two clear winners, and I think for everybody for Gold Coast, was Took Miller, who was magnificent in the middle and won the honours at the stoppages. And their four, their, you know, Ben King kicked accurately, four goals won. He made them pay. And that's a great return for a young full forward battling against an old Gold Coast full forward in Tom Lynch. I don't think he had his colours low, but he took advantage of every opportunity he had. I like the hard hit-up work of a Nick Holman. I thought Ainsworth had maybe his best game almost since I've seen him play for Gold Coast. He's been a bit of a revolving door player. I thought he was excellent. Richmond struggle in the ruck without Nancurvis, don't they? Mubly Old Chole is not an AFL first ruckman and he gets bullied a bit and has been the last couple of weeks. So advantage Gold Coast there. But it was the right result. And for Richmond, you don't write them off because they're a great team. But boy, oh boy, do they need to dig deep now. They've got injuries. And quite simply, the youngsters that have come in to take the place of senior players are not of the same quality and it puts them outside the eight. So they need a bit of a run of luck with returning injured players and they certainly need a lift from those that are out there. Yeah, look, uh, that, that uh, toll that four years of being up the top takes on your depth, I think, starting to be felt. Now, the other thing that struck me with the Tigers was the just that steady erosion of their confidence. They're so fumbly at the moment. Normally, their ball handling is so sure and, and so pure and, and just so many of them just fumbly and a bit hesitant in their disposal. A couple of quick mentions for the Suns for me. Charlie Ballard uh, in defence, terrific. And Jack Lacocious, speaking yeah, about ball use, uh, such a confident, precise user of the footy. Uh, no doubt he's a real long-term for the Suns, as he should be, given he was a pretty um, early draft pick. The other thing that struck me about this game was the Gold Coast almost out Richmond Richmond. Uh, the pressure they were able to apply to the Tigers certainly upped that hesitancy I was just talking about. Look, they had 40-odd uh, more disposals, and yet the tackle count was 66-48 the Suns' way. So their pressure was fantastic. They won the contested ball count. They were in front, uncontested possessions. Inside 50s, uh, they dominated 64 to 42. So you look at all the key stats and really 10 points uh, probably on the narrow end of what they should have been win winning by. But, you know, that's nitpicking. It was a fantastic win by them. Let's hope it leads to something else because uh, we've seen these sort of false dawns before. But um, certainly the reigning Premier in a world of pain going to take a lot to get out of it from here. Final point from you? You know, they talk about certain games being coach killers. This is the exact opposite. I, if there was any discussion about Stuart Dew at the end of the season, and there may well have been, I think this puts it beyond doubt. Stuart Dew retains his position as senior coach at Gold Coast. They'll just look at this game and say, no, we've seen enough. There's something there to go on with. Yeah, well, interesting. Uh, what's next on the agenda for them? Well, they've got a game against GWS, which uh, currently 
is scheduled for Giants Stadium. Uh, we don't know where and when, and that's the case with all but one game in round 17. So we await that with interest. But uh, look, certainly changes the complexion of that one. As for the Tigers, well, uh, every post got to be a winner from here. They are up against Collingwood. Uh, well, we can say pretty confidently that game will be at the MCG. But again, where and when? yet to be determined. All right, that was Thursday evening, and we had another big game scheduled for Friday night. Friday night at GMHBA Stadium, otherwise known as Cadenia Park. It was Geelong taking on Essendon. The Bombers playing their first game for premiership points at this ground since 1993, believe it or not. Uh, certainly got off to a great start, the Bombers. Kicked the first four goals of the game, no less, but all one-way traffic after that. A pretty sure performance from a physically stronger Cats lineup, And they ended up winning this one going away by 41 points. The final score is Geelong, 15-8, 98, defeating Essendon, 8-9-57. The goal kickers. One man stood supreme and his name was Tom Hawkins. He ended up with six. Great game from the Tomahawk. Three goals to Jeremy Cameron, all coming very early in the piece before he twinged a hamstring and uh, that could have some ramifications, but uh, we still don't know the duration or the extent of that injury. But three goals to him, two to Myers, singles to Tui, Rowan, Dangerfield and Smith for the Bombers. Three to Jake Stringer, two to Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody, singles to Jones, Merritt and Parrish. Well, finally, I can't say the result surprised me, nor the margin, to be honest. But after the start the Bombers got, I thought, gee, is there another upset in the wind here? Well, the Cats certainly turned things around pretty uh, comprehensively in that second quarter. An eight-goal blitz in that second term to the Bombers' solitary goal. Four goals, the margin by halftime after they'd been four goals in arrears early on. And uh, just a holding mission thereafter, six goals to just three in the second half. Look, they're a strong team. They're an experienced team. And uh, boy, they defended well. Essendon um, weren't short of uh, the footy, weren't short of inside 50s, but very short of Naus or potency up forward. And the Cats defence just cleaned up and that became a springboard towards them racking up the goals. Uh, a consummate performance by the consummate professionals, pretty much. That's how I saw it. Yeah, it was, a, it was very professional. I think that's well summed up. When you've got, unfortunately for Essendon, they caught Paddy Dangerfield uh, sort of four weeks back into his comeback from injury. And now heading into that game, obviously ready to play a full midfield role. And that he certainly did. I thought he was best on ground. He was a force right throughout the game. And, you know, when Paddy Dangerfield gets a lot of the ball, that sets up a lot of opportunities. Now, Cameron started brilliantly, three goals. But as you said, high hamstring, saw him leave the field, step up Tom Hawkins and, well, Six goals in a game of league football nowadays, that's a mighty bag. He certainly took opportunities when presented and made sure that he created opportunities, leading strongly, using his body, kicking beautifully at goal. 
unfortunately at the other end for Essendon, they also ran into Tom Stewart, who's in fine form. Atkins played a, a pretty good game. He made a couple of errors, but he was working hard to be a conduit out of the back line, as was Zach Tui, another very good game from him, both up back and down forward. He seems to cover a bit of ground nowadays, Zach. Henderson's there. Blitzavs didn't get a lot of the ball, but he was doing following work and also dropping back behind the ball. Made it hard for that young forward line of Essendon, which is why you'd expect or hope that with young Harry Jones and young Perkins, you'd hope that Cale Hooker could sort of step in and fill the breach as he was doing earlier on in the year and maybe get something going. I remember that huge win against St Kilda started with Cale Hooker taking the game by the scruff of the neck. Not so these last few weeks, and that's a bit of a worry because it leaves it really to Jake Stringer and a bit of his brilliance and maybe some drop of the ball work with Tip and Woody. McDonald Tip and Woody didn't get a lot, but kicked a couple of goals, a good front and centre in that first quarter. There just was all that effort by Parrish and Merritt, but not really. It was sort of like, um, in the end, knocking knocking your head against a brick wall, wasn't it? It was Groundhog Day every time they kicked it in the forward line. Yeah, it was. And look, I think the message out of this is Essendon's still a bit short of the mark, which comes as no great surprise. The kids are tired. You know, Nick Cox has been going up and down the one spot for about a month. But they've got a long injury list. So some of these guys who should have had a bit of a breather haven't been able to be given one. Look, Kale uh, Hooker is clearly on his last legs. He's had a mighty season given that. But, um, you know, it might be time to think about bringing one or two more of those kids in. Zach Reed is one um, that certainly comes to mind for the Bombers. Uh, the other point to remember with them too is that, yeah, Parrish and Merritt have been really holding up that midfield, you've got considerable talent out of that side, out of that group at the at the moment with uh, the injuries to McGrath, to Shield and Jai Corwell, who we've barely even seen. So certainly a lot to look forward to there. As for the Cats, well, significant to me that the best players, probably with the exception of Atkins on Friday night, were the senior players. Hawkins, Dangerfield, Selwood, Tui, Isaac Smith, Thought uh, you really saw his value to the Cats. So, you know, after that temporary glitch in Brisbane last week, uh, things just building pretty nicely at the Cattery and uh, they clearly are going to be a very, very big chance of breaking that uh, flag drought uh, that has existed now for 10 years. Um, final thoughts, finally, about where you think both sides are at the moment? Well, Geelong... They're just so hard to beat there, aren't they? I mean, they are so hard to beat down at GMHBA. They need to get those wins, though, four goals down. As you say, they were very professional in how they went about getting back in the game and then controlling the game. I like to see how they perform on the big stage against the big teams. But you know what? They might be heading into the finals with, especially if Richmond can't, lift themselves into the reckoning, their bogey team out of the way. So that could be good news for the Cats. As for the Bombers, there's a spot up for grabs in the eight, up for grabs in the eight, and their run home is pretty comfortable. So wouldn't it be great to be able to accommodate the two masters. One of them continue to play, though not overplay these youngsters and give them a bit of exposure. 
I'd like to see them play some pressure football at the end of the year with finals at stake. You can't buy that sort of experience. You have to actually go through it and also serve the master of making the finals. So I know it's not a priority, but it'd be bloody good if they could do both. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I can't see it myself, but uh, wait and see. Next week, uh, the Bombers have Adelaide on the menu. That game uh, scheduled for Marvel Stadium at this stage. And the Cats are scheduled to play Carlton and that one nominally scheduled at the MCG. All right, that was Thursday and Friday night. We had four games on the Saturday. Let's talk about them. At the MCG, Saturday afternoon, top of the table, Melbourne taking on GWS, who, of course, were very disappointing at this same venue the week before against Hawthorne. Could they turn it around? Well, yes, they could. A terrific win to GWS. They ended up winning this game by nine points. The final scores, GWS 9-10-64, defeating Melbourne 7-13-55. A thrilling finish to this game, but the Giants hanging tough, defended brilliantly in that last quarter. The goals... Three to Toby Green, singles to Taranto, Ward, Kelly, Reed, Himmelberg and Whitfield. For the Demons, three to Bailey Fritch and singles to Pickett, Sparrow, Neil Bullen and Salem. Well, finally, the Giants were fantastic, um, but boy, they were under fierce assault at the end. Uh, Melbourne just absolutely dominating play for much of that last quarter. The Giants reduced to counter-punching, but uh, pretty effective counter-punch, a critical goal coming from them for uh, from Lockie Whitfield at an absolutely crucial time. And they hung on. To their credit, they definitely deserved the victory and they got it in the end and that keeps them very much in the finals hunt. Um uh, Major injury here too to young Buckley. Did a knee and looks like it's the full catastrophe. So no good on that score. But they'll take a lot of um, confidence from this game because uh, I don't think they could have shown the grittier side of their makeup any more than they did. It was a fantastic win. It was a great win. And that young backline, look, Buckley's an important part of that backline, actually. And he got hurt early courageously going back with the flight of the ball. And that would have certainly unsettled the balance of the back line. But Melbourne don't really have a settled forward line, unfortunately. They know that they would like to be playing one of Wiedemann or Brown, but maybe feel that they are better off without them or that their form when played in the seniors doesn't warrant it. So they go with McDonald. They've got Jackson up there, but Jackson's not a reliable goal kicker. Fritsch is a great medium-sized forward, no question. Cosy Pickett is brilliant, but maybe in the last three or four games hasn't quite got as much of the ball as he had previously this season. Again, making him less effective and certainly scoreboard-wise less effective. So I think it sort of falls at the moment because they're finding it hard to kick more than 10 goals a game. A lot of it falls on maybe the midfield stepping up. And that's not really fair, expecting Petrarca to kick two or three a game. But it's almost what they require. And possibly Gorn to come down and kick a goal or two. He had a couple of chances, but he just wasn't able to split the middle. 
at the other end of the ground, you've got a guaranteed bankable forward in Toby Green, who's a he's a ferocious competitor and hits the scoreboard every week. He's a he's a star. He's a one of the probably top five footballers in the comp. Some have him in the top three. I guess some might even with their GWS hat on, have him as number one. He's that valuable for them. Kelly's playing the best football of his career, not exceeding probably three years ago, but back to those heady days, which is great to see. And they've got youngsters in the back line that stood up and did the job. Lockie Ash has been out of the team. He came back in and played well. Iden is a youngster that doesn't get a lot of praise, but played his role in keeping out those four A's forward. Lockie Whitfield, of course, kicked that all-important goal. And for Melbourne, it was sort of a little bit like what they were on the receiving end the week before. It reminded me a bit of Essendon hammering their forward line, uh, hammering, hammering Melbourne's back line with little return. And Melbourne, a week later, suffered the same fate. You need to lower your eyes. And you do need to have forwards that can take the game by the scruff of the neck. And at the moment, Melbourne don't have that. And that puts their attempt to win their first flag in over half a century in real jeopardy, Rowan. Yeah, it does. And uh, I was just having a look at their draw. Um, you know, they've got some games coming up to restore a bit of confidence, I think, and, and maybe finally bed down that forward structure. But... Boy, they want to get a few more wins in the bank because their uh, finish to the season is pretty tough. In the last month of the season, they've got the Western Bulldogs, West Coast, Adelaide, and then they finish off with Geelong at GMHBA Stadium. So, um, boy, it'd be a... Well, tragedy might be a bit strong, but, uh, geez, they'd be stiff if they were to miss out in the top four after all this hard work they've done. So, hopefully, they can uh, galvanise themselves and find something... GWS, in contrast, well, still very much in the finals hunt. They haven't got um, the easiest run home either. Last month of the season, they've got Port Adelaide, Geelong, Richmond before a final round clash with Carlton. So we really are heading towards a fascinating end to the season in terms of not just the composition of the eight, but the sides within the eight where they are going to finish. Um I don't know. I've got to say, look, I've, I've explained my sort of reservations about Melbourne as a flag fancy and how they're probably psychological as much as anything. But a game like this does make me think, geez, when, when it's really, really tough, uh, you know, and the stakes are enormous, am I prepared to sort of go out on a limb and say they can win the flag? I'm starting to have my doubts, Viney. Do you think they can win the flag? I am concerned not just with the loss, but the the sort of um, very much middle of the road or or, or hardly top of the ladder football they've been playing in the last few weeks. Yeah, it's great that they've generally got over the line, but this one tips the scales back against them and makes people think Melbourne are starting to play like Melbourne, dare I say it, at the moment. They need to find something to add to that forward line. They've got choices. They better make them soon, and I hope they work. Well, a big game for them in order to bounce back next week. In fact, the one game in round 17, which is locked in as we record this, 
is the Thursday night clash. Uh, and for the Demons, it's up against Port Adelaide, scheduled for Adelaide. That is a massive test for Melbourne, and they really, really need to jag a win. As for GWS, they have a home clash against the Suns. Uh, date and time slot still to be determined. That was a Saturday afternoon game, and we had an intriguing game scheduled for Twilight over in South Australia. 4.35pm Eastern Time, Saturday afternoon, saw Adelaide up against Brisbane at Adelaide Oval. And for the first half, this was a pretty titanic struggle. It was uh, relatively low scoring, but the Crows doing a really good job of uh, keeping Brisbane in check, keeping them honest. Could they go on with it? Well, they couldn't because we saw in the second half all the power of this Brisbane side. Uh, they were terrific in that second half and ended up with a very comfortable win indeed. The final scores, Brisbane 17-9, certainly got that conversion uh, fixed up at the moment. 111, defeating Adelaide, eight goals, 11-59. The goal kickers, four goals to Lincoln McCarthy, three goals to Zach Bailey, three goals to Charlie Cameron, two to Danaher, two to Zorko, two to McStay, and one to McLuggage. For the Crows, two to Seedsman, and the rest all singles. Walker, Phil Thorpe, McKay, Schonberg, Dodie, or Duday, sorry, and Sloan. Uh, well, they went with him for a half, finally, but um, as much as the first half was about the Crows and their prospects for the future. I thought the second half was about uh, just how big a chance Brisbane now looms as in terms of this year's flag because they were really, really impressive in the third and fourth quarters of this game. Rowan, it might have been because I've just watched Melbourne play and been left wholly unimpressed by their performance in terms of an audition for the finals and as a possible premier. So I'm starting to watch Brisbane and saying, all right, let's see where your credentials are. Lockie Neal not playing in this game and throws things back onto Zorko to lift and uh, cover his absenteeism. There's also questions. By the way, we should mention that Taylor Walker getting uh, a real, what looked like a fairly knockout blow to the head that him coming off that has a huge effect because he is so much the powerhouse heart and soul of that team I know Rory Laird's had a great season and also and so are Seedsman and other players but just his vitality this year has been central to some of their wins that being said it looked at halftime as though Harris Andrews might be down for the count as well. So good news that he was able to take his place on the field in the second half. But that second half, as I said, just as Melbourne disappointed, Brisbane started to excite. This was away from home. This was hostile territory, always is in South Australia, but especially with these young crows that have not much going for them other than so much go, so much determination that it can win games and it can put good teams right off their tucker. And Brisbane actually showed them through their own 
head over the ball ability to play football, their own toughness, but then their poise and their great goal-scoring ability down forward. I mean, Hipwood barely touched the ball, but everybody else down forward looked dangerous. How good was Lincoln McCarthy? He is a South Australian. He's happy to be home and obviously showing off because he played one of his great games. I'll tell you, I'm... I know that Brisbane have to prove themselves at the G. We discussed this, I think, on Friday night. But they're performing on every other stage in a manner that makes them in this topsy-turvy season where form is wavering for some teams. A pretty solid bet to be there when the whips are cracking, Rowan. Yeah, look, it was a real vote of confidence in them uh, away from those comfy environs of the Gabba, I suppose. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to Jared Lyons. And, look, we've done it before, but what a fantastic pickup he's been for them. Um, he was interviewed post-game. And he's a really impressive guy. Every time I see him interviewed, I think, you know, he's articulate. He's so humble, though. He, he took time to sort of give thanks to Adelaide for giving him a start in his AFL career. And he can be excused for being a bit dirty on them. I mean, uh, the time they let him go, they did have a pretty decent midfield and they still, I think Scott Thompson might have still been around. It's a fair while ago now, but they weren't short of midfielders and he was surplus to requirements, but he doesn't hold a grudge. And uh, even Gold Coast, and that's just continues to baffle the football world why the Suns would have let him go. But boy, uh, Brisbane have cleaned up out of that happening. Um, just a really, really impressive individual, Jared Lyons, and he's been such a great addition to that midfield mix. Just efficient, gets the job done, incredibly consistent. Um, yeah, look, they were super impressive. The last couple of weeks, I've been impressed particularly at their harder edge. I've got no doubt this is a tougher version of Brisbane than we've seen the last two years. They're just able to sort of will themselves back into games now. There's a slightly more aggressive tone to the way they play their footy. Um, I was having a look uh, at the tackle count. You know, they won the tackle count pretty handsomely despite winning possession and having 17 more inside 50. So you wouldn't necessarily expect them to dominate tackles, but they did. And they just sort of bullied Adelaide into submission in the finish. So potent up forward as well. You know, a heap of multiple goal kickers. Um, this is their tilt at it. Look, at, and, and now they've had the apprenticeship. Look, they've had two years in finals, first year out in straight sets, last year won a qualifying final and then disappointingly losing a preliminary final. But they uh, that experience, I think, has held them in perfect stead and um, absolutely a massive, massive chance, I think. Uh, can you see them winning it? Yep, I can. I, I don't... I'm not tipping them to win it, but I have them at them. And it changes every week. I mean, it's changing as we speak. But at the moment, to me, the two best teams are the Bulldogs and Brisbane. So I put them in the grand final. I, I think Bulldogs would win that game. But that game is a long way from being played. It is uh, it is a fascinating scenario. Premiership favouritism, uh, literally a minute-by-minute proposition um, at the moment. Next week... Uh, the Lions have a home game scheduled against your mob, Finey, the Saints. And as far as Adelaide goes, they are supposedly coming to Melbourne to play Essendon at Marvel Stadium. So a good test for them. That's Saturday twilight. Saturday evening, we had two games being played simultaneously. 
just across town from each other, one at the MCG, one at Marvel Stadium. Let's go to the MCG and have a look at Fremantle versus Carlton. This game, of course, originally scheduled for Optus Stadium in Perth. Uh, Fremantle, in the end, having to play the Blues on one of Carlton's two home grounds and played them in Melbourne for a second time this season. That's pretty tough. Uh, well, did it prove a decisive factor? Uh, certainly was a factor. A good win to the Blues by 16 points, all set up in an opening term when they kicked four goals to zip from the Dockers, who gradually found their feet. Unlike some other road trips to Melbourne, they didn't completely cave in. Fought back pretty admirably, four goals in each of the second and third terms uh, to the Blues, three in both those terms. So certainly very, very tight at three-quarter time. Seemed to be a bit of school of thought that Fremantle might just roll over the top of them. But credit where it's due. The Blues hung in there, showed a fair bit of resilience, and in the end kicked the only two goals of that final quarter to secure a hard-fought win. The final scores, Carlton 12 goals, 8-80, defeating the Dockers. And inaccuracy coming back to haunt them again. Eight goals, 16, 64 points. A 16-point victory. Three to Harry Mackay, two to Betts, two to Jack Silvani, who worked his backside off. Pretty impressive game from young Jack. Singles to Walsh, DeConing, Dow, Kennedy and Owies. And for the Dockers, two to Brayshaw, Singles to Darcy, Henry, Lobb, Switkowski, Tracy, and Walters. Well, finally, we went different tips with this one. You went with the Dockers. I went with the Blues. Uh, a few nervous nervous moments there towards the finish. But the Dockers continue not to be able to get the job done on the road. Uh, they did the week before, obviously. But this is a game they simply had to win if they were to be considered a legitimate finals chance. Couldn't get the job done. I guess the other talking point out of this is, is the pressure starting to come off Carlton coach David Teague after now back-to-back victories by his Blues. What do you reckon? Keep it going, and it certainly will. They're a demanding lot, you know, at Carlton. And I think at season's end, if they're out of the final eight, it'll be viewed as another tease another disappointing season so whilst they're in the hunt now I don't think they're going to make the eight and I think the pressure is still on still if they can string together more victories who knows who knows they could maybe steal a spot they've they've got a player in that team that high draft selection top draft selection and somebody that I've never really felt has lived up to the billing. I think he's a good player, but I'll tell you what, last night, he was a great player. Jacob Wiedering played a fantastic game of football last night because there was a lot of pressure on that Carlton back line after quarter time. They got bombarded in the second and third quarters. He stood up, but most importantly, in that last quarter, there was a lot of high ball. And I'll tell you, the likes of Sean Darcy and Rory Lobb are not easy, and Tracy, they're not easy to keep off their tucker. I mean, they are good aerialists, and he was fantastic. 
You add Newman, who I thought played a great game, Liam Jones as well, and it was in that back line under immense pressure that really Carlton won the game. Yeah, Silvani. How about that second goal of his, by the way, that mark, great mark and a beautiful kick. He's not really known as a contested mark, but maybe he should be on the back of that. Clearly Paddy Dow's best game for the club. He was excellent. Well, just let me chip in there. I, I reckon you could argue a case that Carlton's best three players were Dow, Wietering and Walsh. And surely that's a pretty good sign for them. I mean, people, right. keep, yep. people keep saying to me, how have they improved? Well, that's how they've improved. The young players are now the cornerstone of that side. And when a guy like Dow starts to find four more consistently, there is a definite upside there. Spot on. You could actually throw in Liam Stocker. Now, he's somebody who I really didn't think have a, had a spot in that starting or, or in, a, in AFL 22, but he stood up in the back line as well. I was quite impressed by some of his efforts. So there are, <laughs> you know what? Remember their previous coach, the term green, green shoots? Yeah. I see them now sprouting a little bit more definitively. That being said, and... Harry Mackay, was, wasn't he good presenting up in that last quarter? Because there was no business down in the goal square and he worked his backside off to present up and really give them an exit and, and, a, and a bit of something to kick to. They need a couple of things, right? They need a top-class ruckman. To, at the moment, to Conning's just a kid. He might get there. Um, Pittnett's injured, but he's not the man. If they could get a ruckman into the side... We know that they're hot on the heels of Chera. He's a good user of the ball, and he played pretty well last night too. If they can manage also to get somehow somehow get that kid Charlie Curnow fit, you know what? That becomes a pretty complete team to me. Yeah, I, I agreed. Um, and, you know, I continue to sort of uh, have an interesting debate about David Teague, but 43 games he's coached. I mean, that's less than two full seasons. Uh, I think he deserves at least another year, but uh, we know how Carlton operates and uh, the jungle drums seem to be beating. A quick final word on the Dockers. Oh, just uh, quickly on Carlton. We, yeah. we haven't mentioned Patrick Critch because he had a foot injury and was hobbled for the evening. We don't know how serious it is. These things can, you know, make terrible headlines a couple of days afterwards. Uh, I feel last night was bad news for a bit of a whipping boy this year, but am I right in saying Sam Doherty wasn't missed? Uh, yeah, no, I think that would be fair enough. And uh, I think that's a pretty good thing. They need to, with all due respect to him, they need to be, you know, uh, sort of looking past the likes of Sam Doherty and, and Mark Murphy. Just a very quick word on the Dockers, you know, like, they still don't have that sort of depth you need to be a serious contender. And there's no doubt the key to their disappointing season has been the year of Michael Walters. I don't know what's happened to him, but uh, boy, he's been ordinary. It's amazing. He seems fit. He, he kicked a goal because he was sort of on the ball and it was in the goal square. But he used to be deadly from anywhere around 35 metres out. It's completely vanished. No, they've got some serious thinking to do and uh, they've got an interesting little challenge ahead too. Uh, well, at this stage anyway, they are scheduled next week, the Dockers, to play Hawthorne 
in Launceston, which uh, hasn't been a very happy hunting ground for them at all. And the Blues, well, they've got a real challenge as well uh, as they attempt to make it three wins in a row up against Geelong and that game at the MCG when and where still to be confirmed. All right, that one was at the MCG and a few Ks across town, we saw a very important milestone match. Marvel Stadium was the setting for a big moment in AFL football history and that was Sean Burgoyne becoming just the fifth man to reach the 400-game milestone following in the footsteps of Michael Tuck, Brent Harvey, Kevin Bartlett and Dustin Fletcher, illustrious company indeed, and and Burgoyne certainly worthy of his place in it. Uh, brilliant occasion, suitably honoured by everyone involved, not just Hawthorne, but uh, the AFL and Port Adelaide, of course, his first side and great scenes at the end of the game with players from both teams cheering him off and his family, his partner and kids all out on the ground to celebrate and a terrific interview too. He's such a lovely, humble guy. I think uh, everyone was just wrapped for the occasion. Unfortunately, though, his second AFL club couldn't deliver a win for him because they were pretty comprehensively beaten by a much better side in Port Adelaide. The power ending up 34-point victors. The final scores, Port 13-9, 87, defeating the Hawks, 7-11, 53, the goal kickers, four goals to big Charlie Dixon, two to Miles Bergman, two to Marshall, two to Mays, singles to Frederick, Georgiades and Rosie. Frederick, of course, activated as the medical sub. Uh, For the Hawks, two to Bruce, singles to Howe, Warple, Kaczynski, O'Brien, O'Meara. Well, they... Got better, the Hawks, and uh, late in the piece, almost sort of threatened to have a, a little crack at it. But you're not going to win games of footy when you go an entire half kicking just one goal, finally. That's where the Hawks were at. And Port uh, really just holding them at bay at their leisure and um, keeping a bit of energy in the tank got the job done very easily. How did you see this one? Yeah, it looked a bit like that Charlie Dixon seemed to be on one and a half legs. He was certainly hobbling around a bit, but he got the job done. He got gifted the easiest goal of the season when an uncharacteristic brain fade by Tom Mitchell probably guaranteed the game wasn't going to be too close. You see that with Connor Rosie. I'll tell you what, he's become a bit of a boo boy, hasn't he, Connor Rosie? I don't know why. I love watching him play, but I guess he has a swagger about him that opposition fans don't like. And Tom Mitchell didn't like a free kick that he had received. He missed the shot at goal. But after doing that, he got bowled over by Tom Mitchell and Charlie Dixon was there to take the free kick from one metre out. I could have kicked that. You could have kicked that. That was one of his four goals. He kicked... uh, handy goal or two in the last quarter just to make sure of the game and that was the match. They did get within 23 points and a couple of players that impressed me on the way there, Bramble, who number 16 of people watching Hawthorne, there's going to be a few new faces there but he's one definitely to keep an eye on and probably the best game for a couple of years for Warple. 
who hit the scoreboard and played a really good, hard game of football. Apart from that, it was Ollie Wines, pretty dominant through the middle. You could just see Burn Jones back to his possession winning damage and best. I think he's been a bit off this season, Burn Jones, but that was a better performance. So that's something for Port Adelaide to hang their hat on. And, you know, they interesting, they, they've got a, these young players, Georgiaitis and now Bergman, who they tantalise. I think they're going to be very, very good players. Don't get me wrong. But at the moment, they're probably not quite complete enough footballers to carry them to a flag. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I've got to say, and I, I tweeted this, um, just that period where Hawthorne started to come back into it, I just felt like Port sort of ran around like chooks with their heads cut off for about 10 minutes. And it started with a couple of sort of, you know, pretty sort of showy attempts at things that didn't come off. You know, Riley Bonner had a couple of brain fades, you know, kicked one along the boundary and got pinged for deliberate. And then he kicked one into the rear end of a teammate and that ended up in a Hawthorne goal. And they just, for five, 10 minutes, sort of lost their way. And those little lapses, I think, are, are really potentially costly for them in terms of premiership prospects. I mean, you've got to have your wits about you for the full 120 minutes. That is a bit of a reservation for me over them. And, um, you know, I don't say that with any pleasure because they're great to watch. And, and you say they've got some of the best young, exciting young talent in the game. You think how many of those guys, I mean, we talk about, you know, Rosie and Butters, obviously he's not there at the moment, but or Dersma, players of that ilk. But now you throw in the likes of Marshall and Bergman. There's plenty of them and they're great to watch. But I wonder if that sort of adds to a collective uh, sort of lack sometimes of steadiness in the crisis. Remains to be seen, but just something to keep an eye on, I think. A quick word from you on Sean Burgle and Finey. Well, when he went to Hawthorne, I honestly thought that's a good pickup for two or three seasons. You know, his brother had just come towards the end of his career and I didn't think Sean was that far behind him. He has been... Uh, that. It's a beautiful nickname, Silk, because that's exactly what he is. There's not a lot of football left in him. I think everybody knows that. But really, up until probably this last season, he was one of the best players in the competition for being the right man at the right time to win games, including finals and grand finals. No bigger, no bigger... Um, uh, honour can be bestowed upon somebody than being a great finals player. And he is. And he's got four premierships to prove it. Yeah, been a, a fantastic, fantastic career. And, uh, well, a uh, few games left of it. We'd, uh, I think, you know, everyone would be pretty staggered if he played on next year, including Sean, I think. Um, so it's coming to a conclusion. But uh, just fantastic to see milestones like that suitably honoured. And uh, the way it was done... Uh, was a credit to all concerned. The Hawks next week, um, I wonder if Sean will even play in this game. Uh, Hawthorne due to meet Fremantle in Launceston. So that's what they've got on the table. Port Adelaide, one of two clubs that knows exactly when and where it'll be playing in round 17. They have a home clash against Melbourne. And uh, that already looming as one of the most critical games 
in the run home. So uh, certainly need to get home and uh, get their minds on the job because that will be a big test for them, as indeed it will be a big test for Melbourne. All right, that was the Saturday program. Three games to round off round 16 on Sunday. First game on the Sunday menu between Sydney and West Coast in the unlikely surrounds of Geelong. Transferred, of course, from the SCG to GMHBA Stadium. We should have had an inkling what was on the cards given the respective records of these two clubs at this venue. Uh, Sydney, we talk about Geelong's incredible home ground advantage. Well, it's never worried Sydney. They have won their last three of their last four appearances at this ground, incredibly. West Coast, in stark contrast, had won just one of their last 13 games at this venue, and that all the way back in 2006, the famous comeback game. Riding was on the wall very early, five goals to one in the first quarter. The Swans adding another six in the second term. The scores at halftime, 11-4 to just one goal three. Uh, West Coast kicked a couple in the third term and the Swans only narrowly won that quarter. But the smashing was on again in the last with another five goals, two to just three behinds. The final score, Sydney 18-10, 118-10. Belting West Coast, three goals, eight, 26. The goal kickers, three to Franklin, three to Heaney, two to Amadi, two to Golden, two to Haywood, two to Wicks, two to Dawson, two to Papley, eight multiple goal kickers and just three miserable singles for the Eagles. Darling, Kennedy and Yo, the only goal kickers for them. Well, an embarrassing afternoon for West Coast, finally. They are a proud club. Their appearance in finals has been pretty perennial, but if I keep this sort of stuff up, uh, they're not going to be appearing in finals in 2021. Some real work to do and some major headaches for coach Adam Simpson. Would you agree? (laughs) Rowan, this result, actually, even the extent of it, didn't come as a huge surprise to myself and probably not yourself either when we previewed the game. Given last week's form leading into this, the very tame performance by West Coast against the Western Bulldogs compared to Sydney's ferocious game against Port Adelaide that saw them pipped at the post, the writing was on the wall, knowing West Coast's, well, not fear, but lack of lack of endeavour when they head down the highway, also a concern. When I talk about our highway, that's the one that takes you from the airport to Cadinia Park. Look, it was an historic occasion, Rowan. First time in almost 650 matches that a game for premiership points at the highest level was played at that ground without Geelong being involved. And it was played without West Coast being involved. This was truly, from pillar to post, an Example of a side that has lost its way. They do not move the ball with any confidence. They adhere in the headlights from the back line right down to the forward line. They've got those big key forwards and they must be absolutely perplexed as to why they have to walk such stop-start football, such lack of endeavour further afield before the ball enters inside 50. 
it makes it so easy for defenders. But on the other side of the ledger, you had Sydney franking their position in the eight, making a play for the top four and really announcing themselves as a wild card. They have got Buddy Franklin, who we know can do anything. Heaney is similarly um, talented, maybe far from as consistent as Buddy, but he's a match winner on his night or day. Papley was very quiet, but that doesn't mean he can't get involved. And when you've got Haywood, another one who put near goals is a danger, you've got the makings of a dangerous finals team. And how about the game of Amati? Doesn't that add to the mix? Yeah, very impressive. And I wanted to talk about those kids because we've said for quite a while now the kids had faded out and been spelled. And, you know, in the case of Braden Campbell, he hasn't played for a while. I thought the really significant thing in this win was that they still got that terrific effort. They just completely outwanted the Eagles, but they also got a bit of that youthful exuberance and dashback. And you, you can see that statistically too. By half time in this game, the Swans led the uncontested possession count by 76 in two quarters of footy. That said a lot about their capacity to run and to get uncontested possession and uncontested marks. And the Eagles just weren't willing to work hard enough. And, and uh, we're talking about toughness mentally here, the mental toughness required to run up and back and run up and back and keep doing it. They just didn't want to know about it. And the Swans did. And they absolutely smashed them to bits. Golden, uh, terrific game from him. Amati, he looks really, really impressive. In fact, uh, gee, the shades of Adam Goods with his mobility and his uh, dangerousness up forward. And, uh, you know, that's a big rap, obviously. But uh, he, they could have something quite special on their hands with him. I How thought, about that powerhouse mark he took in the third quarter? Three back and just busting through the pack. Was terrific. And I thought some other lesser lights were impressive for them too. Jordan Dawson and uh, Robbie Fox, uh, who seems to be a bit in and out of that side. I thought he played a really good game as well. Um, I don't know where the Eagles go from here. They have got uh, a heap of issues to deal with. There's a lot of big names in that side simply not pulling their weight at the moment. Their defence wasn't able to springboard into attack. I thought Longmire handled the way Sydney went inside their 50 very shrewdly and it denied West Coast the chance to rebound. And they really didn't have any other strings to their bow. Look, they're a side that doesn't seek out physical contact. And that's not a, a, a knock on them. It's the way they play. But unless they can are allowed to play that brand of footy, they don't seem to have a, another way of playing. And if, if it does get overly physical and they're not able to uh, spread that defensive net and rebound off it, uh, they haven't got any other shots left in the locker. And, and this spells real problems for them. I, I think they'll still make the finals, but I don't think they'll be doing much in those finals because they won't be in a position to get enough home finals to do anything. Sydney on the uh, other side of the coin, well, anything they achieve in the finals will be a bonus, but it's a good enough story already. They finished 16th on the ladder last year, finally. It's, uh, it's the rise of this season, without doubt, alongside that of Melbourne to, uh, well, were at the top of the ladder before this round. Um, Sydney have got a heap to look forward to over the next few years. They are a genuinely exciting outfit. I, I cannot praise John Longmire enough. We talk about Sydney culture, but this 
resurgence has not been uh, the single... You can, there hasn't been a single fact. It's not... Yes, Buddy Franklin makes a huge difference emotionally and on the scoreboard. Yes, the injection of young players has been great. But also the improvement of middle-range players has been noted. You've mentioned them, Dawson. We add McInerney to the list. You know what I think has been a clear change in the last few weeks? Over the last couple of years, Lloyd has been a high-possession winner and a predictable um, avenue out of defence for the Swans. Virtually every time they got the ball last season... And in the early part of this year, they would look for Lloyd to bring it out of the back line. You know what? Now we've got options. You mentioned Fox, McInerney playing back of centre and others, Cunningham. They ma that makes a big difference. And well done to Longmire in the coach's box. Well, a great test for the Swans next week. They have the all-conquering Western Bulldogs uh, at Marvel Stadium. So that should be an absolute belter of a contest. As we're recording this, still no official time for that game, but you think it'll get one of the showpiece slots would have to, surely. And West Coast scheduled to play North Melbourne in Perth, but yep, wait and see on that one as well. That was the first game on Sunday and the second one took place at the MCG. Mid-afternoon at the MCG, Collingwood taking on St Kilda, reprising some memorable uh, finals and grand final clashes. Uh, this one ended in a nine-point victory to the Saints. Now, you'll look back on those scores and think, wow, gee, this must have been nip and tuck. Well, it wasn't. And uh, Finey will elaborate on why. But the final scores, the Saints, 10-10-70. Outlasting Collingwood, eight goals, 13-61. The goal kickers, two to King. Two to Membry, two to Ryder, singles to Butler, Higgins, Marshall and McKenzie. For the Pies, two to Majacek, the rest all singles. Cox, Dacos, Dugowie, Elliott, Hoskin Elliott and Thomas. Well, I'm still reeling at that uh, final scoreline, Finey, because uh, what was it? Uh, deep into the third quarter, uh, St Kilda led this game by I think it was 49 points. Uh, somehow, talk about taking the foot off the gas, Collingwood, to its credit, did lift. But the fact that they actually got within eight points before a final behind to the Saints would, I think, leave both teams perhaps a little dissatisfied at this result. Collingwood for being in a complete daze for three terms and St Kilda for letting slip um, a chance to boost what isn't a terrific percentage. So... They got the points, but in the end, perhaps not that satisfied with the win. How do you feel about it? You know, Rowan, remember the 1989 grand final when Geelong rattled at Hawthorne? I do. Watching that game, and even in replay, I honestly feel that Hawthorne were never going to lose that game. As much as, you know, Geelong came at them and there were, if this happened and that happened, a lot of people will tell you this afternoon they felt the same way about this game because two or three of Collingwood's goals came very late. In fact, Dermot Brereton back in the Fox studios said, uh, look, St Kilda were never going to lose. 
That is absolute rubbish. In that last quarter, not only did Collingwood kick five goals, but they kicked six behinds, three or four of which easily could have been goals. There was one kick off the ground by Majacek that looked certain to go through, except for a late leg break. The truth is, St Kilda can consider themselves a little bit lucky. Also, Josh Dacos, who started the comeback, St Kilda were 49 points up with 20 seconds to go in the third quarter. And Dacos kicked a very late goal. He was off in the last quarter after five minutes with a finger injury, having played a very good game in his 50th, amassing 20 possessions. Believe me, he could have been part of the mayhem as well. St Kilda absolutely stopped. And it was only the sense of occasion, strength and all-round outstanding games of Steele and Crouch that continued to the very final siren that I believe got St Kilda over the line. Yeah, um, for the most part, St Kilda played Collingwood the pants off them because Collingwood was static, they were cautious, they were desperate to maintain possession at the expense of movement. But you know what happens in games, Row, and we've seen it before, teams get so far behind that they throw caution to the wind. Well, as soon as Collingwood did that, St Kilda were left basically at the gate. Collingwood just pounded the ball forward in that last quarter. And I've got to say, I feel St Kilda were fortunate to hang on. Well, talking about games that reminded you of, it reminded me a little bit of that 2019 preliminary final Collingwood played against GWS where they were never looking likely at any stage for three quarters and then suddenly in desperation as much as anything just threw caution to the wind in the last quarter and almost pinched a famous victory and one which took them into a grand final. Obviously the stake's not the same this time but yeah, Collingwood supporters must be scratching their heads going, what is going on? Why does it take a situation like that? to make us take a bit of a risk and show a bit of flair. And until they sort of change that mindset of safety first, I think they're going to keep getting the same result. Look, one thing St Kilda surely must be happy about is Brad Hill's return to form. I thought he was terrific for the Saints in this game and uh, coming off half-back offered a lot of drive. Probably not coincidental that as the Saints' fortunes have... uh, restored themselves, you know, a bit, perhaps a bit late in the piece, Brad Hill's form has improved as well. Yeah, very much so. And he's been good now for a number of weeks, as has Mason Wood, providing a really good hit-up target for St Kilda, strong and playing a different type of football than we ever saw him play at North. At North, he was goals or nothing, but at St Kilda, he's very much a hit-up leading player, and also a good, strong tackle. He's certainly earned his spot on the list. As I said, Crouch excellent, Steele excellent. The combination of, well, you know I'm a huge rap-off for them, Ryder and Marshall yielded three goals and won the ruck duels. Amazing. Did you hear about Ryder's week? An amazing mm. week. Mm. Uh, went to Western Australia, had to drive to Geraldton, back to Melbourne, arriving in time to play the game, basically, and had a very good game. So more power to Paddy Ryder and our thoughts are with him and, of course, his family at the loss of his uncle. St Kilda won the game. They keep alive, but now their draw gets very, very difficult and they'll be needing to play four quarters 
not three quarters, against the opposition they face in the next few weeks. So I guess in one way, a bit of redemption and a bit of salvaging from what had been a terrible season after that loss to Adelaide. Well, speaking of that difficult draw, uh, the fun, in inverted commas, starts next week. They are scheduled to play Brisbane at the Gabba. Uh, Will that happen? Mm. Well, who knows? But uh, it's going to be a tough assignment for them if it does stay put at that ground. Collingwood, meanwhile, well, they've got a pretty tough as well. They are drawn to beat Richmond and a particularly angry Richmond after having lost to Gold Coast. So what will happen there? Will we see the Magpies of the first three terms or the rather more adventurous Magpies of the final quarter? Be an interesting watch, that's for sure. One game left in round 16, the Sunday Twilight fixture at Marvel Stadium. Round 16 wrapped up at Marvel Stadium Sunday evening with a battle of Marvel co-tenants, Western Bulldogs and North Melbourne. As you'd expect, uh, the betting pretty one-sided in this one and the result pretty much as expected, although not without the favourite having to do a fair bit of hard work to get over the line in the finish by 29 points, almost 100 points less than the margin they defeated North Melbourne by in the earlier shellacking when these two teams met back in, I think, round three. The final scores this time, Western Bulldogs 16-12, 108, defeating North Melbourne 11-13, 79. The goals, four goals to Cody Waitman. Gee, is an excitement machine, that little blonde-haired whippersnapper. Three goals to Mitch Wallace. Two to Bruce, two to Liberatore, two to Dale. Singles to Garcia, Hannon and Williams. For the Roos, four goals to Cam Zerha. Speaking about exciting small packages, got a big future, that boy. Two to Cunnington, two to Goldstein. Singles to Davies, Uniac, Scott and Thomas. Well, I've got to say, the Bulldogs got the job done and they were impressive enough, Finey, but really impressive, I think, for an alleged Bottom of the ladder team, the Roos. They just hung in there and hung in there. It looked like it could blow out. Three-quarter time, that margin had, in fact, crept out to 38 points. But the Roos kept coming. And at one stage, had a chance to get the gap back under 20 points with still 10 or so minutes to play. The Bulldogs steadying, of course, as good sides do. Comfortable winners in the end. But uh, credits, I think, on both sides of the ledger out of this game. Do you agree? I do. Just as the previous game we discussed, Collingwood's Kilda may well have two sets of coaching teams disappointed in the game, losing and surrendering a big lead. The opposite here. I think the Bulldogs will be pleased with how they controlled the affair, very pleased with the ongoing development of Cody Waitman, who actually moved almost to full forward when Aaron Norton went off with concussion. And that means he can't play next week against stiffer opposition, the Swans. That's telling. They'd be pleased that Mitch Wallace, who's been searching for form this year, finished the game off with three goals in the last quarter. That's good for confidence. And he's well-liked by his teammates. So it's just good all round. So on that side of the ledger, plenty for the doggies to be pleased about. And also the game of Young, who was impressive, wasn't he? Look at North Melbourne. 
corresponding fixture earlier in the year was a record pasting, and they've improved by 100 points. I mean, that's a, a pretty good marker for a team that has certainly improved as the season's worn on. And this game, not at their favoured venue down in Hobart, but at Marvel, where they've caught some shellackings. So I reckon it's almost smiles all round. Look, you're not going to get a coach smiling when they lose, and you can't tell nowadays anyhow because everybody's covered up with face masks for COVID. But I've got a feeling that David Noble would be leaving that ground thinking, yeah, you know what? My job or our job as a coaching panel is to see improvement, and I'm actually seeing it. And that's what North fans want as well. Well, like they could have got a lot closer. I mean, they really did waste some opportunities in that final quarter. Four goals, eight. Like yep. I said, they had a chance to get the gap back down under 20 points. They did this without a real contribution from Nick Larky, who was a little bit out of sorts and a little bit wayward in terms of shooting for goal. But, geez, they're getting great service from their senior players. You know, Ben Cunnington, we've sung his praises the last couple of weeks, but terrific again today, 26 disposals, a couple of goals, nine clearances, seven tackles. I mean, he does it all for them. Jack Zebel playing some good footy now. And uh, as far as their... Uh, recruits from other clubs go. Aaron Hall has had a terrific season for the Roos, really rediscovered his best 31 disposals for him today. So plenty to get excited about there. Robbie Tarrant, another one who's come back into that side after a long spell out and done really well. And they're starting to get, uh, I guess, consistent or more consistent contributions from the younger guys in that side. I don't think you can ask a lot more. And when you look back what was going on with them, early in the season, they really have improved a fair bit over the course of this year, I reckon. But let's not forget about the victor. They are on top of the ladder now. And I don't think their premiership stocks have ever looked better than they do right at this moment. Equal on points with Melbourne, but a fantastic percentage. In fact, they've got just about a 20% gap to the Demons. Their percentage now 1476 to Melbourne's 128.4. They've got all bases covered. Aaron Norton, of course, will be a loss for them, but you suspect they've got enough firepower elsewhere, particularly their midfielders who kick goals to be able to cover that loss, even against a side as good as the Swans. They've got a series of winnable games after the Swans next week. They've got Gold Coast. They've got the Crows. uh, They've got Essendon. They've got Hawthorne. So really well set up for a very, very serious crack at a second flag in five, five years. And uh, the ball squarely in the Bulldogs' court, Finey. Um, where do they rank on your premiership pecking order at the moment? Well, I've got them as my premiers at the moment. As I said here, look, it's the end of the round. We've discussed already how movable this feast is, Rowan. I see. I'm going to call it a Bulldogs-Lions final with Bulldogs certainly at the MCG holding sway. That's tonight. Who knows what the future holds. Just one thing on North Melbourne. You know what I'd like to see before the end of the year? Especially with Tarrant back in the back line and Josh Walker capable of holding down a key position. I'd like to see Ben Mackay go forward. I know the temptation is there because of his 
brother Harry and how successful he is as a forward. But he's a beautiful mark, Ben Mackay. Why not just try him for a couple of games and see what that tandem attack of Larky and Ben Mackay would provide? I think it's worthwhile having a look at. Absolutely. Well, uh, big test for the Doggies next week against Sydney. Gee, I'm looking forward to that game. Two sides that are great to watch. This will be eagerly anticipated. And North Melbourne, well, ostensibly headed to Perth to play West Coast. But at this stage, who knows where, who knows when. Uh, Keep your eyes peeled for details as they come to hand. That is round 16 previewed. We've got one segment left to go in this show. It, of course, is the rant off. And I'm particularly looking forward to finding his one this week because he's given me a little preview of it. And it's a bloody cracker. On Footyology, the rant off. Rightio, Finey. I was sitting there uh, watching Saturday Night Footy and having a look at uh, some none too thrilling games and some fairly pedestrian footy and score lines. And uh, it popped into my head and I started to get angry, which will surprise you, not at all. And I thought, I'd make these thoughts the subject of my rant this week. Are you ready to count me in? Yes, I certainly am. Uh, one, two, three, let's have it. I'm pissed off with the football world, Finey. Gee, that'd make a change, I hear you thinking. Okay, I know. But like really pissed off with it, as opposed to just mildly annoyed, which if I'm honest, is sort of how I live my entire existence anyway. It's all the same things as usual. You know, the commentary of games, the lack of decent coverage of them, them, the self-congratulatory tone of it all, and most of all, the goldfish memories and constant knee-jerk reactions. And I was thinking of that last point again as I watched Hawthorne limp to a scoreline of one goal five at halftime against Port Adelaide on Saturday night. Specifically, I was thinking, just what happened to this new brand of high-scoring, high-octane football we were all patting ourselves on the back about over the first few weeks of this season? Do you remember that column Mark Robinson wrote about Steve Hocking, the man who saved the game? I think he was calling for him to be knighted from memory. It was a dodgy enough call then, to be honest. After all, we were about five seconds into a new season with a lot of water still to go under the bridge. Secondly, Hocking has a job looking after a football competition. He's not discovering a treatment for cancer, nor helping steer a whole community through a global pandemic relatively intact. No, that would be the health officials. Robbo's own newspaper, The Herald Sun, spends much of its time attempting to portray as war criminals while kissing the feet of a sporting competition administrator. Never say The Herald Sun doesn't have its priorities straight, Finey. Anyway, given that this alleged saving of the game had seen another team head to the halftime showers with one goal to its name, I decided to do something relatively foreign to the new breed of footy media. I checked some facts. So it turns out the average score per team this season is a pretty paltry 81 points. Yep, that's precisely one point more than the 80 points per team we were recording when we last had a full season of full-length games in 2019. Obviously, that's way too long ago for most of the football media to remember or care about, but I'm sure plenty of our listeners will recognise that it appears to be yet another case of football's fourth estate going the early crow. So for all the self-congratulation and the sense that, okay, we've fixed this problem, let's move on to the next. 
We're one point better off than two years ago. The lowest scoring season since 1967. Hang on. You mean the man on the mark rule hasn't actually revolutionised the game? You mean letting the guy kicking in from a behind crib another five or so metres hasn't really changed much? Most of all, you mean having to listen to umpires yell, stand every five seconds as teams chip the ball sideways again hasn't been for anything much? Even that umpire who goes, stand, with the baritone voice, who sounds like Randy Marsh in South Park calling out for his son, stand. Nope. Not really. Look, this hasn't been a bad season by any means, but if the AFL's intent on the game speeding up on a consistent basis and increasing scores, it's clearly going to need something a bit more substantial than constant tweaking. And how many tweaks has Sir Steve Hocking got left in his kit bag anyway? By my count, we've now had 6,743 rule changes over the last five years. Short of having all midfielders run around nude, forwards playing in clown suits and defenders having to do their jobs wearing flippers, I'm not really sure there's a lot more room for manoeuvre on the tweaking front. Well, except considering the change that would actually make a difference, fewer players on the field. Or that one that, as you know, Fanny, I've been banging on about for the past five years, where we don't go nearly that far, but simply get umpires to call for a ball up more quickly and get them to actually pay a few more free kicks for holding the ball instead of letting it bobble around in the mass of players so long it has to virtually be surgically extracted. Worth a thought, I'd reckon. Don't expect the major media outlets to get on the case, though. They'll be too busy banging out their annual rich lists of AFL players and ramping up the trade speculation again. Maybe Sir Steve Hocking could get on the case, Fanny. Spot on, Rowan. I knew it. I knew we hadn't turned the game into this high-scoring Wonderfest. I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? No, well done. Well done, my friend. All right. Well, I've got that off my chest. Uh, time for you to let rip. Are you ready to rant? I am indeed. All right. Three, two, one. Go for it. A serious one this week, Rowan, and all our footyology fans. Look, I've been guilty of putting this one on the back burner. I should have addressed it earlier. But so marginalised has my topic become that I am actually at fault of forgetting about it. But no, now I give it its due attention. The VFA, or as it is now known, the VFL, was formed in 1877, the second oldest Australian rules football league of all time. And for 100 years, it was relevant, very relevant, Pre-war, it lured greats from league football, such as Ron Todd, Sophie Valance and Bob Pratt, with big money and they were big stories. Its golden period, though, was when I fell in love with it, the late 60s through to the 70s and on to the very early 80s, when Channel O, then 10, had Sundays all to themselves to broadcast the 16-a-side Soap opera that was VFA footy. High scoring and plenty of biffo. The high scoring stars, Freddie Cook, Frosty Miller and Joe Radogjevic, they were household names up there with AFL, then VFL stars. And the boys of Biff, Alf Buse, Harold Martin and Buster Harland and the Goss boys down in Port Melbourne, they had their fans as well. They were all watchable and 
had their big followings. Now, yes, clubs have gone by the wayside since then, mainly because of the then-league VFL's insistence of horning in on Sunday football. Well, it had to happen, and clubs did perish. But then in 1995, the VFA was no longer its own master. AFL Victoria took over, and so was its death knell. A year later, for some reason, the VFA became the VFL. Wasn't that important for things to come in terms of respect and ownership? And since then, the VFA has been a play field, a, a, a place for the AFL to play its reserves, to do its want without respecting the competition at all. There's been affiliations that have been one-sided, driven by the AFL club's need to play players with little respect for the VFA's club and ambitions to win flags. We've seen great clubs perish. Paran, Campbell, Brunswick, Oakley, Dandenong, Yarraville, to name but a few. And the disrespect has hit new heights in 2021. A 22-team competition including GWS, Gold Coast, Brisbane and Sydney and Aspley and Southport in the Victorian Football League. Now you've got a competition of AFL reserves. Well, I've already mentioned Aspley and Southport, two interlopers from Brisbane, AFL teams that aren't even in Victoria and the poor old standalone clubs trying to survive in that world. It's farcical, so farcical that at the start of the year, the AFL wanted to use this competition as a petri dish for the de-clogging um, of the game with some rules that in the end got so held down by public and by AFL coaches and by those who understand football that it never happened. But it showed the level of disrespect the AFL has for the competition, which really now is just a place for VFL, or I should say AFL reserves, to ply their trade. No respect for Port Melbourne or Williamstown, almost 150 years old, or Coburg or Preston. Brave clubs trying to keep the flame flickering. You know what? If those clubs were to die, I doubt the current AFL administration would miss a beat. It certainly wouldn't cause them a sleepless night. They're all about legacies, this lot. The previous, Andrew, Demetrio and Fitzpatrick, for them it was Gold Coast and GWS. The current administration, headed up by Gil McLaughlin, AFLW and maybe a team in Tasmania. Now, these are noble pursuits. But why do they expect future administrations and custodians of the game to respect, maintain and uphold their legacies into the future when they have shown such scant respect for an important legacy of the past, the VFA. Learn the lesson, boys. Learn the lesson. Not only is the future important, but also the past, and you're treating it terribly. Very, very well said, Fawny, and uh, concur 100%. It's got so out of hand. I I couldn't have even told you how many teams there were in the competition. And, uh, yeah, you just end up sort of losing interest in it altogether. 
uh, very, very sad days. And you're right, it did sort of start with that initial renaming of the VFA as the VFL, which they never had to do. Um, that Just now, disrespectful. That now 26 years ago. So, yeah, it's uh, using the whole thing as a sort of guinea pig. Uh, of course, it was going to take a toll and sad state of affairs. So very well articulated. I think a lot of people would have been listening to that and nodding their heads in agreement. Appropriate note to finish on too, that is the end of this week's Round 16 review. We are, of course, always brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly. What about our other wonderful sponsors, Finey? We'll talk about tradition and, and the past and also respecting it. How about Andrew's Hamburgers? They're in their ninth decade, 82 years they've been going. And the burgers are absolutely the tried and tested formula, the true Aussie burger that is so beloved by so many. And that's why they are successful today. Respect for the past makes them the absolute burger for now. 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park. And also, when you talk about home design and rebuilds, you need to respect the past as well. And that's why when handed a footprint of the past, some of these beautiful old houses in and around inner southeastern Melbourne, I'm talking Middle Park, Albert Park, South Melbourne, etc. West Point Properties and Nick Spartels gives you everything modern and up-to-date inside but they do not tamper with those beautiful historical features that are such a part of those suburbs. That's the brilliance of West Point properties. And you also need to respect stats and data when it comes to football, Finey. We do, and so does another official partner of this podcast, Stats Insider, the best sports data analyst in the business. Check them out at statsinsider.com.au. You can give them a follow on Twitter as well, at Stats Insider. You, our magnificent audience, can always help us by uh, visiting the supporter page wherever you're listening to this podcast or become an official Footyology patron at Patreon. And there are links all over the website, footyology.com.au. Some great stuff on the website this week too. A uh, great piece by a leading economist, Tim Harcourt, about the business case for an AFL side out of Tasmania. We've got a little bit of politics from Andrew Garner, a great piece by Simon Hill too, about the uh, mounting bandwagon of English soccer. Now, uh, England into the semi-finals of the European Championship. So high times for lovers of the Ramble Coast. Some great reading, seriously, great reading on the site this week. So check it out. And if you like it, please become an official Footyology patron for $7 Australian per month. You can help keep this little operation ticking over. This little podcast will continue to tick over next week, uh, our next episode Wednesday, when we look ahead to round 17, hopefully we'll know where more than one game is scheduled and when it will be played. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Hope your team got a win. We'll catch you later. Mm-hmm.